In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These might be the most ten significant words ever strung together. The way in which we live is, dr is drastically altered depending on the validity of these ten words. If these words are false, then human existence is just the sum of biological responses. I feel hungry, so I eat. So on and so forth. Survival of the fittest is what would drive our decision-making, what would drive our culture. What are, there's, there's no, no reason to have morals like honesty and fairness and equality if these words are false. If these words are false, then when all is said and done, life is just about our own short little lifespan. All that would matter is getting what you want, protecting what is yours. And even that wouldn't really matter because within a few decades, we'll all be gone too. If those opening words of Genesis are false, life takes on a sadness, a harshness, a self-protective or self-gluttonous, joyless outlook. But if those 10 words are true, if, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then life takes on a whole new meaning, filled with purpose and potential. Life is now marked by a joy, a creative joy, to bring out the best in ourselves and the world around us as we seek to know our Creator and how He intended creation to operate. If God is behind this, if God created the stars in the sky, the birds in the air, and the microscopic structures that hold you and I together. If God is behind this, then everything changes. We have to ask ourselves, is our creator knowable? And to what extent? How much involvement and interaction does God intend to have with his creation? It's these questions that the first few chapters of Genesis address. But before we look at those, I want to spend a moment on what Genesis doesn't say. I think you'll appreciate the form and the content of Genesis chapter 1 much more when you look at it in light of the other competing creation myths of the day. There have been two major creation myths dis discovered from the same general time period. One is a Babylonian creation um, account, and the other one is a Sumerian cre creation account. And then in the the first one, the Babylonian creation account, it's called the Enuma Elish. Has anyone ever read the Enuma Elish? I know Laura has because she was in the same Pentateuch class in seminary. Oh, we got a couple. Oh, look at that. Um, and in, in this Babylonian creation account, there, there are basically two sets of lowercase g gods. There's higher gods. There's two of them, two higher gods, and then, two, and then, and then uh, several lesser gods. Well, in the uh, creation account, one of the uh, lesser gods revolts and kills one of the higher gods and then has relations with a female god, and the result is the birth of Marduk, not the loving dog of comics, Marmaduke, but Marduk, the king of the Babylonian gods. Marduk goes to war with the last of the two higher gods named Tiamat, 
you'll see the relevance in a second here. Just, just bear with me. Actually, I was telling this to one of my kids and, and uh, one of my boys, and he loved the story. Um, but Marduk goes to war with Tiamat, the higher god, and actually ends up filleting Tiamat's body. This is the creation myth. And Tiamat's upper body becomes the heavens, and Tiamat's lower body becomes the earth. It's, yeah, it's pretty disgusting. Um, Marduk goes on to conquer another competing god named Kingu, and Kingu is killed, and his spilled blood becomes the seeds of the human race. Hang with me here. I'm not trying to gross you out, but help you understand the culture that surrounded the Genesis account and Moses, its author. The second major creation epic comes from uh, the, the generally the same period of, of Genesis is uh, from Samaria. And in the Sumerian epic, it goes something like this. There are, again, two classes of gods, the higher gods and the lower gods. And the higher gods create everything. They create the heavens and the earth. And the lower gods are put to work by the higher gods to work their creation. And so the lower gods have to dig out the rivers, they have to dig out the lakes, and they have to do all this hard toil. Now, one of the highest of the higher gods, who's sort of like the mother goddess, her name is Nemu, she encourages another high god named Enki to uh, make people so that they can relieve the lesser gods of their hard work. And so people, human race, is created as slave labor to do the grunt work of um, the lesser gods. These two creation accounts, and even much later creation accounts like the Roman and Greek um, creation accounts that, that were more closer to the time of Christ, um, just sound so far-fetched to our 21st century ears, don't they? I mean, they, they sound childlike in many ways, as if a bunch of third and fourth graders got together and say, how can we explain existence? No offense to you third and fourth graders who are here. The Genesis account of creation is so much more logical. It's so much more poetic and, well, beautiful. And although written probably somewhere around uh, 1400 B.C., 1400 B.C., it has a simplicity and a profoundness that has really stood the test of time. I want you to look at this next slide with me, and I'm going to teach you uh, two words in Hebrew, <clears throat> and then uh, I promise no more uh, deep academic stuff here. Um, that those aren't typos or flaws in the PowerPoint. That those two Hebrew words. The Bible starts off in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then we have verse 2. The first half of verse 2 says this, um, now the earth was formless, and void, or the earth was uh, formless and empty, tohu and vohu. Uh, now, if you know nothing about the English language, what can you tell me about tohu and vohu? Someone shout it out. Name one thing you, one thing you can tell me about tohu and vohu. Yes, it rhymes. Excellent. I, I think that's important, actually. Um, and uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 is setting the whole structure for the creation account. Tohu, vohu. Formless and void. Now, formless has no shape, um, tohu, and vohu, void, empty, has no contents. Days one through three give earth its form, its shape, its containers, if you will. Day one, in verses three through five, God creates light 
separates light and the darkness. Light and darkness. Day 2 in verses 6 through 8, God separates the water and the sky. Verses 9 through 13 tells us that God sets the landscape, the trees, the shrubs, the land. So, first three days, God provides a remedy to Tohu. The earth was formless, now it has form. Days 4 through 6, God provides a remedy for Vohu. The earth is empty, well, no longer. Day 4, the sun, moon, and stars fill up the light and the darkness. The fish and the birds fill up the water and the sky. Day 6, the animals and then mankind, humankind, fill the land. Days 1 through 3 add form. Days 4 through 6 add content that corresponds to those forms. And on the seventh day, our creator rests. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, compared to the, all the other competing creation myths of its day, it's not only the beauty, simplicity, and form that's different in the Genesis 1 account, it's also the message that's dramatically different than all the other creation accounts. In Genesis 1, we see one God, not a whole bunch of gods warring and fighting with each other. We see one God, one creator of the universe, who doesn't create the war or violence, but simply by putting his thoughts to words. God speaks, and it happens. God says, let there be light, and there was light. And mankind isn't an afterthought. Human beings aren't the indirect results of war between the gods. Human beings aren't created to alleviate the toil of lesser gods. Human beings are the climax, the crown of creation. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over creation. The Bible's first words are, in the beginning. It's a story that starts with God. God is the subject. God is the foundation for all of existence. Not God at the margins. Not God as an option. But God as the center and the circumference of the circle of life. This is God's story. We start with God, but we quickly find out that God's story is written for us. It's written for you and I. If God is the subject of the story, we, human beings, are the direct object. First, as we just read, God makes us in his image, in his likeness, both male and female. We are created with incredible potential to be good, to do good, to create good. The image of God is detected in the human race whenever human beings do things like design massive skyscrapers or when a mom delivers and nurses her baby for the first time or when personal wealth is used to start a school or a hospital for people with no access to either. The image of God shows itself when we exercise compassion, when we give our time and energy to help those in need, when we care for and foster the potential of God's creation around us. But God's hardwired image in us is not the only way he blesses human creation. 
Another way he honors us and includes us in his plans is simply by putting us in charge of the family business. Not in a slave labor, labor sort of way like the Sumerian epic, but in a CEO or president or uh, autonomous collective sort of way. We're put in charge of creation, being asked to make it flourish, protect it, to serve it, bring out the best in it. In Genesis 1, 28, God, said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then when God had finished all he had made, he stepped back and declared creation very good. And on the seventh day, the creator rested. No violence, no deception, no slave labor. God's very good creation given to us, his very good people. But even better than being made in the image of God, even better than being in charge of all of creation... We were created to know our Creator. Genesis 3, 8 and 9 says this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. Now this is just after they disobeyed God and and committed that first sin. Ate from the fruit uh, of the tree they weren't supposed to. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Isn't that an amazing couple verses? Forget the fact that they've just royally screwed up in our hiding. Just look at the facts of this. Imagine that the first interactions we see with God and his people is God taking a walk in the garden in the late afternoon hoping that his creation is going to be there so we can spend time with him. It's a very innocent picture. It's a very intentional picture. See, both we and the author of Genesis know very well that God knew what Adam and Eve was up to. God knew where and why Adam and Eve were hiding. But Genesis goes out of its way to show God's personal, relational nature. He may be the author of everything in existence, but he wants to be in personal relationship with his people. An intimate relationship. An intimate relationship as intimate as two people taking a walk together in the cool of the day. We were created by God for God. The problem comes in when in the beginning of chapter 3 we read that um, a scenario that once it happens, happens again and again a zillion times over. It's a story where God's creation thinks that the creator is holding out is setting up rules to limit us, to subdue us. It's just like that, that parent who says to its child, don't touch the pot, it's hot. But that child, wanting to exert its own will, wanting to know the experience that his mother is forbidding, 
reaches out and touches the handle and gets burned. God says, stay away from this tree, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will know evil. They choose to do things their own way. They don't listen. They give God the old, oh, I can handle my, it myself. I don't need your simple rules. And they reach out. And they get burned. And eating the fruit, they open themselves to everything that stands against God and his goodness. And swallowing the I know better than God bite, the two humans swallow guilt and shame. And they begin a cycle of selfishness and sin that leads to blame shifting and betrayal and eventually murder and envy and all kinds of strife. Honestly, it's the story of the human race. Very good creation. Pure, intimate relationships marred by selfishness, envy, ego, mismanaged desires. Daily, maybe even hourly, we, the creation, have declared that we know better than the creator. Man, adultery is a great example of this. This short-term pleasure is what I want. And for a quick fleeting moment, we do damage to our soul. We kill our relationship with our spouse, our kids, and our God. Daily, the creation declares that we know better than God. Our innocence has been lost. Our souls have been marred. Creation has been soiled. To save us from remaining in this sinful state forever, God evicts the humans out of the garden. And from the perfect peace and union that mankind has with each other and with God, they are now in a state of sin. But God cannot turn his back on his creation, not even for one second. In fact, as he's doling out the consequences for their sin, for their rebellion, he's providing a rescue for their sin. We sang this in the first song. I don't know if you caught this, but but, um, let's see if I can get there. Genesis 3.14 says this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, and I, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And then all of a sudden it switches to uh, singular. Third person singular. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. That's the, the first inklings of the gospel. Right in there, right in the the consequences for their rebellion, God provides a solution. And he, Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. He'll put an end to sin. Sure, the serpent will strike at his heel as he does on the cross. But on the third day, Jesus arises victoriously, putting an end to 
to the slavery of sin. Here in just page three of a thousand plus page story, God makes a way for us to regain paradise lost with limitations. Now, we can't fully know the beauty of God and his creation now because we're still limited. But someday we will be there. Someday we'll experience the full greatness, the fullness of both God and his creation. Revelation 21 talks about this. Fast forward from chapter 3 in Genesis to chapter 21 in Revelation, and we find another garden, a garden in the city. And it's very good. There's no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more dying. In Revelation 21.5, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Some of you here have lived your life with the idea that God is angry at you. That he sits from heaven judging, waiting for you to make a mistake so he can zap you. Or you feel that he is distant and doesn't care for you, simply has forgotten you. But from the beginning, from Genesis 1, the Bible shows us that this is not the case. He wants to be with you. He has not forgotten you. Genesis 1-3 through is the evidence that God created you for himself. This is still God's desire. As we begin this journey through the Bible together, I want us to commit to two things. One, I want us to commit together to the realization that our way is nothing compared to God's way. Our way is nothing compared to God's good, perfect way. And the second thing I'd like for us to commit together as we read is that all of us would allow God into our personal lives. Now, for some of you here, I know you have a hard time trusting that, even talking in those terms. God is relational. God is personal. It's my prayer that all of us, as we read through God's word together, would allow God full access into our lives, even the ugly closet that we never open, even the spare bedroom where we hide all our junk, that we give God complete full access to our lives so that he has the freedom to do the restoration work in us. And as we read how he goes about restoring human history, he would be working in us, restoring our lives. Would you commit with me to that? Would you commit with me this evening to realizing that no matter how cool or how right we think our way is, God's way is way better? And will you commit with me to opening yourself up to Jesus' work, who is right now making all things new, restoring. We can't hold back. Whatever we hold back, God will not restore. If we're holding on to our finances, God will not restore them. If we won't give them our thought life, God will not restore it. If we won't let them access to our, 
our marriage or our family life or our parenting skills or our, our struggles, he won't restore it. My prayer is that we'll be changed through reading God's word. And there's a built-in promise. In God's word, it says, his word never returns void. And if we commit to reading it and applying it, we will be changed. Let's do that together.